0: If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss Him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around Him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Father, we know that all four Gospel writers included this scene in their narratives because it is crucial. It is crucial for us who are being saved to see it and to feel it, to be abhorred by it, and to love it because of Your sovereign purposes in saving sinners like us. So allow me to represent this text accurately. Let us see that which is here. To the glory of Jesus, our great Savior. Amen. This could be a depressing passage. The kiss of betrayal. And what we see here on the human level is worthy of grief. From the outside, it seems as though Jesus' life is spinning out of control here. It started a few hours earlier in the upper room at the Last Supper where it hit its apex when Jesus said to the twelve, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. And then Jesus announced to them, one of you will betray Me. And then Judas left. And then the others, in immature, childlike way, started arguing and bickering about which one of them was The greatest and Jesus then prophesied about Peter's coming denial. And then the table conversation ended with the disciples' stupid response to what Jesus had been saying. Look, Lord, we have two swords! And then, for a couple hours, outside the city gates in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed in anguish and fervently, sweating great drops of blood, Father, if there is any way, please remove this cup, the coming cross, from Me. And during that time, three times He went back to His disciples whom He admonished, pray so that you don't enter into temptation." And each time He comes back and they are sleeping. And the last time, while He is again saying, pray, don't sleep, a huge mob with torches and blades and baseball bats shows up. Are things spinning out of control? in Jesus' life? Has God somehow fallen asleep? Do things ever feel like they're spinning out of control in your life? It hasn't gone quite the way you anticipated. Around every turn and corner, there's some kind of trial and pain, disappointment. This is what our text says to us this morning. You can be assured that what we read about what happened in the garden that night, God is in absolute sovereign control. And because of that, if you're a believer, no matter what comes in your life, you can be assured your Father has it all under control. This is the Apostle Paul's interpretation of our passage. He said it this way in Romans 8 starting with the end of verse 31. Believer, if God is for us, who could be against us? Now now listen to where Paul gets his foundation for that statement. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, We'll see it in our passage. The Father handed Him over. He didn't spare Him and hold Him back, but He gave Him up for us all. Then how shall He not also with Him, by Him, and through Him, graciously give to us all things? And this is what leads Paul to say, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? All because the Father did not spare His Son, but He gave him up to arrest, trial, suffering, and crucifixion. So, if you remember, a few days earlier Judas made a deal for 30 pieces of silver to... Give information on when the Jewish leadership could find Jesus alone and away from the crowds. Jesus knows, I mean, Judas knows where camp is. Verse 47. And so while Jesus was speaking to the disciples, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss Him. First, I want you to notice that stunning statement that may just pass over us. Judas, one of the twelve. Why does he do that? Luke is already in a very short narrative compared to novels and books, He's already told us that Judas was one of the twelve when Jesus originally chose twelve apostles. And then at the beginning of this chapter, He's said it again with verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And remember what the text went on to say. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how He might betray Him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give Him money. And so, He consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. So why does Luke feel here again in our text he has to make the point he's one of the twelve? I think the obvious answer is that he wants to shine the spotlight on the gravity of this sin. It's not Judas, one of the crowd, Were Judas, one of the Pharisees or one of the religious leaders, but it is Judas, one of the twelve. That inner circle of Jesus' most intimate friends with whom He is entrusting ministry. And so as was the custom, in those days disciples would greet their rabbi with a kiss which now would become a perfect sign or indicator to the arresting officers behind Jesus this is Jesus this is the one this is the one out of these 12 men remember it's in the garden it's late at night it's dark many of these officers these roman soldiers have never seen Jesus and hung out in the temple. They don't have a photograph of what He looks like. And therefore, they need a sign. And the one I kiss, come get Him. He's the one because they're expecting chaos here in the middle of this park to erupt in the middle of the night. And so, Judas walks straight up to Jesus to kiss Him with the arresting officers right behind Him. While He was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss Him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now I want to pause here in Luke. Because right before this Judas coming up and these words and this kiss, the Apostle John tells us something happened that the other three Gospels do not include. And I want to turn there for a moment. In John 18, starting with verse 4, we read, Jesus said to them when the crowd came up, Whom do you seek? They answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Judas who betrayed Him was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. So He asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered them, I told you that I am. So if you seek Me, let these men go. Notice those words. In English, I am, and they had the pronoun he, assumed. In the Greek, ego, a me i am and if you know the gospel of john you know how important those words ego a me are to john before abraham was born ego a me i am For he's claiming Not just to be a carpenter and the preacher from Nazareth, but to be the God of Moses. The way God revealed Himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. I am who I am. Tell them, Moses, I am sent Me. In John's text... Strange. I says they all drew back and fell to the ground. and Okay, that's all he tells us. So I'm just going to conjecture a little bit. I mean, why? I mean, you got the Roman soldiers who were used by the chief priest in the temple. They're here. And those guys fell back. They couldn't care less about Jewish theology. Of I am. Maybe something, something else was also happening, like the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe just a, just a taste of a moment of divine glory seeping out through Jesus' humanity at that moment, and it stunned them to the ground. You remember back in chapter nine. Jesus was praying and the appearance of His face was altered and His clothes became dazzling light and the voice came out of heaven, this is My Son. whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. So, So maybe as Jesus uttered these words, somehow God just for a half second pulled back the curtain and they collapsed to the ground. It's almost as if Jesus is toying with them. You seek Jesus of Nazareth? I am. And boom. Jesus could have vaporized them. But instead, in John 18, verse 8, He says, I told you that I am He. And then listen to His care. If you seek Me, let these men go." And then Judas approaches Jesus and Jesus says to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, in the Greek text, that phrase With a kiss is emphatic. It comes first, which you can do in Greek, you can't do that in English, to show emphasis. He's saying, Judas, with a kiss? You would betray me? Are you so dead, so out of touch? Is to choose a kiss of friendship as your sign. Is your soul that darkened? Now I want you to notice from Matthew's account something else here in Matthew 26. We read in verse 48, And now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, One I will kiss is the man. Seize him. Okay so that's the plan beforehand and they now had already fallen to the ground and Judas comes up and then we read in Matthew 26 verse starting with verse 49 and he came up to Jesus at once and said greetings rabbi and Jesus said what he said from Luke and he kissed him and Jesus said friend Do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized Him. What a stunning contrast to what we have seen throughout all the Gospel writers up to this point. Do you remember back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus enters His hometown synagogue to read and He opens up Isaiah 61 and He reads the passage and He closes the scroll and He says, this refers to Me. And He continued on to preach And by the time He was done, they were so livid and fuming, they wanted to kill Him. And they had Him to the brow of the hill. But then the text says, but passing through their midst, He went away. I mean, it is as if God in His sovereignty and through Jesus is just toying with them. They wanted Him dead. But they couldn't kill Him. Why? Because His hour had not yet come. Listen to John words this in John 7.30. So, they were seeking to arrest Him. And this is another occasion than the one in Luke 4. They were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. In John 8, verse 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple, but no one arrested Him because His hour had not yet come. Okay, that's what we've been seeing. Now in our text, in the garden of Gethsemane, we are told, they laid his hand, their hands on Him. They seized Him. They arrested Him. Why? Because His hour had come. You see the sovereignty of your God here? This is no premature rest, it's no premature death that will transpire in the next 18 hours. Throughout his life, nothing would be allowed to touch him until his hour. And his hour arrived and thus God handed him over. God is sovereign over the date. It's Passover week. Over Judas's greed. Over the anger of the Jewish leadership. Over everything. Until... That's a strange way to put it. No, He's still sovereign when it's time to hand him over. Back in Luke, verse 48, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around Him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Wonder who that was. It's Peter. John's the only one that tells us that. It was Peter who swung the sword and cut off Malchus's ear. Peter, I mean, John lets us know who this guy was, and maybe we just postulate that they knew his name was Malchus because this guy eventually became to Christ weeks later. But feel the situation here. Okay, What in the world was Peter thinking? Most scholars agree that this crowd is anywhere between 100 and 200 men. It's not a small crowd. They're carrying steel sharp blades and baseball bats to come get him. And Peter sees it and he responds, let's start swinging a sword. Who knows why? I don't know. Maybe because Peter's still already grieving because of Jesus saying, you're going to deny me. I'm not either. I'm going to prove myself. I don't know. Whatever the reason, his act was pure stupidity. He was playing into the hands of Jesus' enemy. Now thanks to Peter, the authorities could go back to their authorities, Rome, and they could claim, look, Jesus and His gang They were planning an armed rebellion. And we got intel on where he was and as we showed up, they attacked us. Peter did. Good job, Peter. And remember what Jesus will say a few hours later to Pilate. Listen to it. My kingdom is not of this world. If My kingdom were of this world, My servants would have been swinging swords, fighting so that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But My kingdom is not of this world. And so, as this all happens, Jesus took immediate, action you can just imagine the chaos it's dark malchus is lying on the ground screaming his ear is over there there's over a hundred men right there ready to pounce and jesus yells out no more of this everybody freezes and jesus crouches down and he puts his hand on malchus's bloody head Miraculously, His ear is as normal. And there's no more sign of a violent uprising. And Jesus is merciful to His enemy. And now, before Jesus addresses the leadership in our text, along with the arresting officers, he said some other things to his apostles first. And we get this from Matthew chapter 26, starting with verse 52. Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. In other words, you choose to live a life of violence, Every time you don't get your way, you most likely will die a violent death. That's what I think he means. But his main point, his big point to them is what he goes on to say. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But listen to him. But guys, if I did then how should the Scriptures be fulfilled? Think Isaiah 53. Slaughtered as a substitute. How should they be fulfilled so that it must be so? He says, guys, don't you get it? Swinging a sword is totally unnecessary. If I want to escape this moment, all I have to do is say, Father, 72,000 angels right now. And they're all dead. Guys, my struggle through prayer over the last couple hours is done. I have yielded to the Father's will. I've been strengthened. It's now time to go to the cross. Jesus is handing himself over to them. Judas, with a kiss, you would betray me. Judas wasn't real. And it finally showed up to everybody in a big way. Matthew 27, verses 3-4 to says this about what happened a little later that night. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But this is not the repentance of saving faith. This is not godly remorse. He felt bad. He felt remorse. Because he, he didn't envision things ending up the way they started to end up so quickly with Jesus. It, it clearly caused him a psychological discomfort because of his actions. And this happens all the time with people with false confessions of faith. They get found out. They get exposed for what they've done. They grieve over it. But at the root, it's really self-pity. They don't feel that their offense is really the offense against the Creator, against God. They don't feel that in this, I have offended the glory and the beauty and the mercy and the grace of such a wonderful God. Unbelievers, they do feel remorse for their boneheaded actions, but it's not mixed with a heart of faith of broken contriteness that the Spirit of God dwelling in a believer produces. And that's what happened to Jesus. And ultimately, he felt this remorse not to some good God-glorifying end because he never submitted again in any way to the Lord Jesus. We see in that text there that he made an effort to make things right. Here's your money. Please undo everything. When he was in the temple. But he didn't have true repentance. He didn't have a heart of faith are to trust God and His promises. And so, as a darkened, lost soul, he compounded his sin by committing suicide. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself." Back in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, picking up with verse 51, Jesus said, "'No more of this!' And He touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest and officers of the temple, and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the pow- this but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So here we see the crowd consists of the religious, the military, and the civil leadership, the elders of the people, all there to put a stop to Jesus. And Jesus responds, with this rhetorical question which is really his rhetorical rebuke about them sneaking around in the cover of darkness to come get him when he was never hiding. He's addressing their fear and their hypocrisy. You come out as if I am a violent thug? You guys were too afraid to do this in public. But here's the kicker of this whole text. It's in Jesus' words. This happened in the cover of darkness for a reason. It is God's sovereign plan for the forces of darkness to have their moment. And this is it. Quote, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's ponder that statement for a few minutes. What does he mean? I think it's a three-sided meaning here, biblically, about this hour. Darkness that is transpiring. First, it's this. What we see in the garden with Jesus' arrest and what it's going to lead to is the climactic moment when the darkened, fallen human race exerts everything it's got against Jesus, who is the light of the world. This is how the Apostle John says it in John 1. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through Him. Yet, the world in its darkness did not know Him. He came to His own. And His own people did not receive Him. The Jewish leadership refused the light because they were filled with spiritual death. Darkness. Just as Jesus said in Luke 11.34, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, Your whole body is full of darkness. And so here in the garden, they are demonstrating on behalf of all humanity, Jew or Gentile, every race, every culture, every creed that has ever lived is indicted here in our sinful nature as they demonstrate the depths of human depravity. It is spiritual death. It is utter deadness of feeling, of sense, of the beauty of God, and it strikes out against Him. It is darkness. Darkness. Sin always desires to stamp out the light. Just as if you're camping and fire gets outside your fire pit with branches, you run over and you stamp it out. That's what's happening in them. That's the first thing. The second thing about this power and hour of darkness is that it is Satan's hour. This authority or reign of darkness that Jesus refers to is used in Ephesians 6 when Paul writes in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In Colossians 1, he writes, He has delivered us believers from the... Domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is Satan's hour. Because fallen humanity had become tools in Satan's hands. The Sanhedrin may have felt, we're free! We're free to go after our own sinful, well, anyone think that way, godly impulses in condemning this Jesus. But they were nothing but slaves to their sin-darkened hearts. And that sin was just being fanned to flame by Satan and demonic powers. That's this hour of darkness but there's a third part of it, and that's this. Don't ever think at this hour of darkness that God somehow fell asleep. Because this was also, in some mysterious way, God's sovereign hour. In the upper room a few hours earlier, when Jesus prayed His great prayer that John tells us about at that Last Supper, He began it this way. Father, the hour has come. And by hour, He means everything that is now transpiring. He means this hour of darkness of His arrest in His trials and being spit upon and beaten and flogged and crucified and raised from the dead. Yet this hour has come. Listen to Him. Glorify Your Son. Let the Son through this hour may glorify You." This is God's Sovereign, saving, redeeming, ordained from the foundation of the world hour of darkness in the hands of Satan and mankind. The betrayal the suffering and the death of Jesus was coming about because this was also God's hour. This is the hour to purchase for Himself a people, and a bride for His Son. Five weeks later, Peter will stand up in the temple and he will preach, quote, this Jesus... Delivered up. Picture the garden in our text to a rest here. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You knelt to a cross and killed by the hands of lawless men. So in our text, After three years, we come to this place. Jesus has just handed Himself over in submission to His Father. He just showed mercy to Malchus. And for us and for our salvation, He proceeded into the night's darkness with a mob back down the hill and up again through Jerusalem's gate so that He would conquer death and sin for all who would have Him for all who would believe in Him. And He will confirm it all three days later by being raised from the dead. And from that time up to this very moment, He has sent the Holy Spirit where He is grabbing for Himself a people by shining the light in the hearing of this good news of Jesus. And they come alive to Him and are saved forevermore. Before I close, what else can we take away then from this text of what we saw transpire? First, this. We could look at the happenings here as a warning for all of us to constantly examine our hearts. Remember, Judas walked With Jesus, He was in the inner crowd. He had seen His miracles and His healings for a few years. Watched Jesus have compassion time and time again. Watched Him forgive sins. He was considered by others a follower of Jesus. And yet, he never knew Jesus the way the eleven other guys did And it finally showed. Don't ever be one of those. Being raised in a church family can be dangerous. You can be deceived, because that's your culture. I know all these Bible things. I even know good theology from my church. Let me tell you, the statistics say that the kids being raised in this church like throughout evangelicalism everywhere and loving youth group and in high school and gung-ho, it's 16 and 17 and 18. By 24, over 50% of them don't darken a church door. But instead, What was always true finally showed itself in their 20's like Judas showed himself this night. Don't be that person. As the Apostle John writes in his first letter, they went out from us because they never were truly of us. If they were, they never would have gone out out. and so the Christian life is a life no matter who we are what stage of Christian living we are in or how long you never wake up thinking I don't need self-examination today about my relationship with the Lord never but we always obey Hebrews 3 12 to 14 take Care, brothers, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. Take precaution by encouraging one another every day so that you may not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, His mercy is great. And the mercy of the Holy Spirit indwelling every believer is what causes us to take heed to that warning. Finally, every one of us who has been born again, who who is indwelt by the saving presence of Jesus, He'll never lose us. He'll never Loses, But every one of us who has genuine saving faith has never betrayed Jesus like Judas did. But we have all turned our back on Jesus. We have all had our moments and moments and moments and moments a year in, five years in, 30 years in, 60 years in, we've had our moments where we turn our back and live for those moments in rebellion and disobedience to His Word with a heart of unbelief. We deny Jesus in sexual immorality. We deny Him when we gossip. We deny Jesus when we refuse to forgive someone who has asked for it. We deny Jesus when we worship money and refuse Jesus to have that part of our lives. We deny Him when we cower with unbelievers trying to act like them because I want to be accepted. We've all done it. We've all known. I probably should have spoken there. There's an open door with the Gospel. And we cowered. We've all done it. So now just listen to this. Hear it, hear it, hear it. Thank God we come next time to our great model. Not Judas. No model for a believer. But we come to Peter. as our model. A model of us broken, sinful people who are being saved and forgiven by coming to repentance again and again by the grace and the mercy of such a loving Savior as throughout our lives we're crying out as we saw last week. Above. Father, so let me just close this morning by saying this. Believer, if you've ever, ever have asked the question or will ask it, can I come back? Will He take me? Can He forgive me for for this? The answer is yes! Precisely because of the text we saw tonight. The answer is yes! Because this dark hour of Jesus' arrest was ordained by God for our eternal forgiveness, for our life of repentance and faith, and for our times of Holy Spirit indwelling and refreshing in His presence over the Word. So, hear Him. Hear this glorious, dark hour as His mercy and fall again into the arms of your loving Savior. Sweet, sweet, sweet arms. They are, Lord Jesus. Oh, may you be working in ways that only you and each individual knows, but ways that are sanctifying, growing, and Holy Spirit in filling. We are all so desperate. We thank you for such. A glorious Gospel. He who has no money, you have nothing but sin, and brokenness, no credits to your name. Come, drink from the fountain of life. Oh, you are good, Lord Jesus, for you have lived the life we couldn't placed it to the account of all who have come to faith. And you you have nailed our sin with its deserving eternal wrath upon the cross. Oh, we thank you. And you have risen victoriously, And thus you are working in us that which is pleasing in your sight glory of Your name until that day when You come to retrieve us and resurrect